This podcast is supported by Apollo Global Management. Ensuring a brighter, bolder future means investing in tomorrow, today. That's why Apollo is financing solutions to some of the world's most complex challenges. Learn more at Apollo.com. Hi, it's Andy. Today, we're bringing you another one of our conversations from Davos, this one between Barron's Editor-in-Chief Dave Cho and Adina Friedman, the Chair and CEO of NASDAQ. Hope you enjoy. My name is David Cho. You're at, at Barron's uh, with Adina Friedman. Adina Friedman, of course, is the Chair and CEO of NASDAQ. She's one of the most powerful people in finance, so it's such a privilege to have her. She's also a black belt in Taekwondo, so <laughs> she's powerful in many ways. So please welcome to the stage Adina Friedman. <laughs> Adina. It's great to be here. Yeah, very nice to have you. Um, let me start with your assessment, your outlook for the economy. Where do you think it's going? You've kind of put out there some more measured comments about what the Fed should do, a little bit of caution. Uh, we heard earlier today someone who was more encouraging the Fed to cut rates. Okay. But, uh, you know, I'd like to hear your view on this, the, the kind of caution that you're sending to the Fed. And why is that? Sure. Well, I think first, let's just say overall, we, we come into 2024, I would say, with it's cautiously optimistic. So we have the cautious because it's still a very dynamic macro-political uh, world. It's still, there are still a lot of challenges that every, every economy and every government are facing. And we have to kind of expect the unexpected as we go, as we, you know, in the fourth year in a row of expecting the unexpected. The optimistic part is because of the fact that it, we, I think we feel pretty confident that rates are not likely to continue to go up. Um, we also see that inflation is coming down and it's starting and it's being relatively consistent in that way. And so those two factors make it so that if you're an investor and you're trying to underwrite risk, you have two of these external factors that are becoming more known. And that helps them then say, okay, well, how do I then underwrite the, an IPO. How do I look at the future potential earnings of a company? And I have both the cost of capital and the cost of doing business in a more stable environment than they were last year or the year before. And so I'm feeling more confident in being able to project that business. And so I'm ready to put risk capital to work. Hopefully that means more IPOs. So that's, that's the optimistic part. Um, but in terms of rates, I think we have to be very careful about assuming that the Fed's just going to kind of start the glide path too early. Um, they want to see consistency in a lower inflationary environment. I think the worst thing that could happen is that they cut a rate too early, people get overly exuberant, mm -hmm. prices come back up, inflation ticks up again, and then they end up having to revert back or they have to you know, do something that I think would shock the market. Yeah. So the, I think that they're going to be much more likely to be more patient in saying, let's make sure we see this that, the, that the inflation environment is continuing to go in the right direction, not as, not as rapidly, but hopefully in a steady manner, so that we can understand that we, if we make a policy change around rates, it's not going to suddenly whipsaw the market. Um, and I think that's likely to be somewhere I've said, you know, kind of late Q2, early Q3, more likely to be something where you see, I don't know, two to three type of rate increases or rate decreases rather than anything more than that. That's, Six that's seems kind of, optimistic. I think that's a little optimistic, yes. Um, and, and I think that that would get you down into kind of a four and a half to five percent interest rate environment, which in this, in, in this environment is not, not um, you know, that's not asynchronous with the overall inflationary environment. So that's how I look at it. 
I see. And so you see that staying around for a while, that well, four and a half. And I, I think that if, if inflation continues to go in the right direction, they will have more fortitude to continue to bring rates down to something. But I think we should assume kind of, I would say, a three to four and a half percent um, in rate environment for the the foreseeable future. I mean, if they can get that down to that kind of three to four and a half percent and have inflation at that two to two and a half percent, that's, that's, a, that's a monetary policy that's very persistent and, and can be very sustainable. I see. And do you think the zero rate environment, that's kind of a thing of the past, yeah, I, that, that, is, yeah. that era is over? I, well, that's, it's been a 15-year experiment Right, um, and we kind of know what happens in those experiments. Now, the the economy withstood a very low interest rate environment for a long time because the economy was growing very slowly after the credit. I mean, it obviously it dipped, and then it slow. It, it was a very slow growth environment for a long time, and for a protracted period of time, um, and inflation remained very low as a result. So, therefore, they they felt that they wanted to continue to have an, a very easy monetary policy to to stimulate growth. Well, you know, they, we've had a growth stimulant, um, and we also see that there are unintended consequences to an ultra-low interest rate environment. People are not as discerning as, what, as to which investments they choose to take on. Um, and I think that also, you know, generally speaking, you want to have an economy that has rigor, has, I would say, you know, it's make, it has resilience, and also has a cost of capital that forces some level of prioritization. Um, and so that they, people make smart decisions, they make long-term decisions, they're, uh, they're making conviction decisions around the growth of their business or the growth of their investments. That's kind of I, I, how I look at it. That makes sense. L let me ask you about NASDAQ itself a little bit. You've, uh, and I'm not quite sure if everybody's familiar, but you've been really transforming the company in quite pronounced ways, made some of the biggest acquisitions in the company's history. Uh, we, you know, shareholders finally got a sense of just how big of an acquisition Verifin in particular was. You know, in five, ten years, what is NASDAQ going to be? Is it going to be an exchange or is it going to be more of an information technology company? Can you explain its trajectory, where it's sort of going? Yeah, well, we are a technology provider to the capital markets and now the broader financial industry. And part of being that technology provider is providing very advanced markets. And so the market, us as a market operator, that is actually a very big technology challenge, um, and we are extremely advanced in how we provide our markets to the world. We also provide markets to 100 other exchanges around the world. So we have brought our technology around the world to help stimulate capital markets all over the world. We now also provide you know, a, a suite of solutions that, that really focus on liquidity, transparency, and integrity. You know, our markets are our foundation. We're extremely proud of what we do to serve the U.S. markets and the Nordic markets. Um, and, and what we do is really provide liquidity, transparency, and integrity. So as we broaden out the solution suite that we offer to the industry, we've gone on those three lanes. Liquidity, let's make sure that we provide proper risk management technology to enable the industry to put more uh, capital into the markets and manage their liquidity more successfully and provide liquidity solutions to other markets. In terms of a transparency, we provide very advanced uh, solutions across IR, ESG, and, and governance to help uh, corporate clients manage the complexities of the capital markets and communicate more effectively with investors. But we also then provide very transparent index products and other investment products. And then I think the third thing is on integrity. You know, we really focus in on solving the massive problem of financial crime. 
um, with our anti-financial crime suite, as well as managing the very complex regulatory infrastructure or regulatory reporting requirements that the banks have you, around You just the had world. a report on financial crime we just did. this week, right? Yes. For those who haven't seen it, do you mind just sharing a little bit about yeah, that? Yeah, we worked with, uh, with Felon and with Oliver Wyman to come up with how do you size this problem? You know, um, money laundering and fraud. It's a $3.1 trillion problem in, in, in laundering money around the world um, through the financial system. And it's a half a trillion dollar problem in, in, um, in fraudulent you know, uh, transactions that occur in the financial system. That means, and then you also have other, other ancillary um, nefarious behaviors as well. So you're looking at almost a $4 trillion problem. And it is, you know, the banks have been put on the front lines to try to solve this problem, but they can't do it alone. And they frankly even can't do it just amongst themselves. They need to have a public-private partnership. So the study was a lot about how do you create collective action collective solutions, how do you use technology to be much more effective at it, um, and what are the policy decisions that need to be made to make us make the industry a lot more effective in solving this problem? Got it. So in 2020, you acquired Verifin. Right. And it was about, a, if I recall, like a th just short of $3 billion. Yeah, $2.75 billion. $2.75 And so they're providing solutions in this space. What part of financial crime is growing the fastest that will benefit that unit the most? Well, I would look at it more, what are we doing to solve the problem better than everyone okay, else? Okay, that's fair <laughs> enough, all right. <laughs> that will grow the business the most. Um, but, but what's yeah. the problem so, out yeah, there so, scaling? So, yeah, so it's really interesting. Um, it, it, fraud moves, so I'll start with fraud, because AML is giant, very complex problem, and so we'll talk a little bit more about that. But on the fraud side, it's just people stealing money out of other people's accounts in lots of different ways. Um, and you've got romance scams, elderly abuse, just hacking, you know, ha cyber, cyber um, theft, other things like that, business email compromise, um, wire fraud, uh, check fraud. So, you know, watch Catch Me If You Can, it's starting to happen again, right? So that's a U.S. problem. We still use checks. Um, but it is a, and what's really interesting is as you get better, let's say, at combating wire fraud, which our solution is very good at, um, then it, the, the, the thieves are very, very nimble. And they'll then say, well, if, that, if we're kind of closing that door, we're going to open this other one. And check fraud has actually become a bigger issue in the United States in the last year. Um, so it's super interesting. But what we do is actually solve all of those issues. And the, the way that we do it a little differently is in the United States, which I think is something that should be followed around the world, is that the banks are allowed to share data with a neutral third party for the purpose of crime management. And so we pool data across 2,500 banks that represent $6 trillion in assets. We get millions and millions of transactions, and we, we, use, we do use AI engines to um, create typologies that are specific to the different crimes. So like in a romance scam, they behave differently than someone who's elderly abuse. They behave differently than someone right. who's you know, perpetrating human trafficking, things like that. So we build typologies that are specific to the way that they behave in the, in the financial system. And we run those engines to make the alerts smarter, to cut down on the false positives that the banks have to manage, and to make sure we actually root out more fraud. So that's a pure, you know, kind of really solves a major, major issue to the consumer and the consumer experience in the banks. And then, of, of course, it saves the banks a lot of money. I see. So is that part of NASDAQ's business a higher, faster growing and a higher margin than kind of your foundation ex index uh, business? Like, in other words, if I was a shareholder of NASDAQ and over the past year it's been down, but in the past six months 
as Verifin's results have sort of emerged, it's been a very good stock, actually. Um, is that the trajectory that you'll, we'll be seeing out of NASDAQ, kind of this fast-growing, higher-margin business? Yeah, I actually would say our margin is, we have a wonderful, a wonderful business. Sure. We're super scaled, and therefore we, have, we deliver a, a very strong margin in general. And so the anti-fin crime suite and our broader reg tech and capital markets suite of technology today is actually is going to be, it's, it's, it's growing the fastest in the company. So anti-fin crime in general is an 18 to 23% grower. But the margin profile is a little bit lower because we're actually investing a lot in the platform to drive more and more growth. So we're able to leverage margin that might be in other parts of the business to really invest there. Um, and then across the Adenza business, which is the other business we bought, that's actually also a, That was a $10 billion. Yeah, that's a $10 billion acquisition. That's a 10 plus percent grower. You know, we're kind of in that, the low mid, um, the low um, teens and in terms of a grower and has a margin profile that's actually consistent, if, if not even a little better than the overall Nasdaq margin. So two very, very exciting uh, ways for us to continue to expand the platform, the growth and the margin. Okay. I, I think we don't contract Verifin as at Barron's, and I will make sure we don't send a check to the <laughs> We'll pay them another one. You know, it was actually funny. At one point, our, our one of our own employees at, had, you know, someone attempted to, um, you know, kind of pretend who they were yeah. and steal money through a check. And their bank called them and said, you know, I don't think this is yours. And he said, no, it's not. And he said, which system did you use to catch this? And he said, oh, we used Verifin. Oh, I see. <laughs> so that we were actually excited about This podcast is supported by Apollo Global Management. As one of the world's largest alternative asset managers, Apollo is generating investment-grade credit, providing greater access to more resilient and diverse pools of capital, and helping to fill gaps in America's financial ecosystem. Learn more at Apollo.com slash private credit. Let me shift gears a little bit. So... Um you know, right now, if you open ChatGPT and uh, you ask it, what investment should I make? Where should I put my money? It actually, uh, the makers of that prevent an answer. They don't want generative Well, AI. that's because they have, we'd have to be registered as yes, an, an exactly. investment advisor. <laughs> so right now, that doesn't exist. But project a little bit into the future. It may not be picking stocks, or it might be. But how do you see generative AI in particular playing a role uh, in how we invest our money and yeah. how Americans invest. I think it's a great question. I, I think that you can see it as a companion. I think in general the AI is going to be a companion for a long time, meaning there's nothing better than human judgment. And at the same time, to have a companion that can compile an enormous amount of information and give it to you in a very curated way that allows you to make a smarter decision that's, I think, a companion that every investor is going to want, right? So they can take, uh, we have a lot of alternative data that we provide to the industry. There's a lot of, you know, other, you know, what I would call leading indicators in terms of business performance, in terms of economic performer, performance that the AI engines can compile. They can look at commentary on, on earnings scripts. They can look at a lot of different things to try to say, here's kind of a way for you to consider this investment Here's all the information. It's curated. Here's all the source materials. And here, therefore, we can make a, a smarter decision faster. I mean, that would be the, I would say, version one. 
of, of an investment assistant. I'm going to call it that. I don't know if everyone's heard of that before, but an <laughs> investment assistant. Right now. There we go. Um, but that's, I think that that's, that's just the early stages of what the AI could, you know, has the potential of doing. But what are the dangers that, like, yeah. retail investors or even some financial advisors, what should they look out for, um, you know, I as this kind of becomes integrated into Okay, our so investments. there's a couple of things I would say. Um, I'm going to say trust but verify, but I would also say I don't know whether the AI now is, is completely trustworthy because of this issue of hallucinations. So you want to make sure that when you're pulling, when it's pulling information and it's coming from known sources. So here, please pull from these sources to give me this information, number one. And please give me all the source material, like, like reference all the sources, cite it, like a, you know, a term paper. Um, so that you, have, you cite all the source materials so that you know that it's pulling factual information. And then recognizing it as an assistant, not a decision maker, it allows you to kind of make your own judgment on the back of what it's been able to find. So I, I think those are the things to think about. It's, um, that verification is super important, that judgment super important, but that assistant could be, you know, could make decision making faster and better. Yeah, you use the word hallucination. It doesn't mean that AI is smoking pot. It means, can you explain? For yeah, people? so, oh yeah, sorry. So AI, it's very interesting. And if you ask the, the makers of the LLMs, they're still investigating why this is happening. But there are moments when the LLM, the large language model, the AI, will essentially make up an answer. Um, so you have, now if, if it's given its own, if it's, you know, up to its own volition and it can search anything and everything, it sometimes will give you an answer that's not the truth. Um, and it's a very interesting thing and it's a, a prediction model. So it's not even, you kind of sit there and see, and they really are trying to understand the under, like what I would call the root cause of this, of this issue with the prediction model. So, but the way to solve that is to, you want to use a large language model in terms of the value of its prediction capabilities, but you want to put it against known source material so that you then make sure that it only can draw from that source material. You can code it so that it, it, it basically to prevent that. Yeah, that's very interesting. Uh, one last topic I wanted to just uh, cover is, you know, Nasdaq's had a very strong commitment to DEI principles. I, I believe you're one of the ones that has basically asked your, the companies in your index to reveal uh, what it's doing about DEI on its board in particular, if I'm understanding it correctly. Um, you know, not everyone was happy with it, but it would, you sort of stood by that. You know, DEI's going through a moment now with Harvard and everything that's been going on. There's been a forceful pushback. H how do you make sense of what's happened over the past couple months, and how has that made you think or not rethink your sort of commitment to DEI? Well, we are very committed to what we've done sure. and how we're, how we're working. So I think the first thing is, let me explain the rule. So sure. the rule asks every company that's listed on NASDAQ to provide a table based on self-reported information from each board member as to the composition of their board from a diversity perspective. And then it encourages companies to consider having one diver two diverse board members on their board, um, one, one female and one underrepresented minority if, if it's a US company. And the, and, but the only, um, the caveat to that is they have, if they don't have that, they just have to explain why not. Right. So, and, it, and they have four years in which to kind of get to that state and they just, they provide the table and to the extent that they want to provide an explanation, they do. And that the, and the explanation could be anything because we're not there to judge the explanation. What we're trying to do is just provide investors with consistent information that allows them to make a discerning choice 
and governance is a factor in terms of, of investment decision making. And when you think about governance, you want to have diversity of experience, expertise, outlook, but you also want to have a board that represents your clientele, that represents your employee base. And so those things are all factors that I think help investors make, make smarter decisions. Um, and this is a rule that we, put, we proposed in 2020, it was approved in 2021, and now we're, we're two years in, oh gosh, we're almost three years into it. So um, it's, it's, and it's, it's working. So that is, I think, something that we feel that provides investors better, better you know, visibility and better information. From an overall perspective within NASDAQ, you know, we operate with the principles of diversity and inclusion, and we think that that's important. It makes us a better company. Um, we do things in terms of just creating the right culture, creating the right forms for all of our employees to feel included through our employee networks, through our programs, through our, through our management training, um, and then just to make sure that we are always focused on it, but we're doing it in a way that's sustainable, that's long-term. And the last thing I would say is, as a leader uh, of a company or the leader of an exchange, we have to look at things over a long-term period of time. We, when we make the types of decisions we're making around rules or culture, these are long-term decisions that define the future of the markets, the future of the business. And I think in that context, we feel very comfortable and confident what we've done. You know, at, as events have folded over the past couple months at Harvard, and there's been this kind of Twitter conversation that's, you know, typical social media, but, um, you know, it's tied into the presidential election. Have you had conversations within the company? Have those only served to reaffirm your commitment to it, which I'm guessing is the case? But, but have you just kind of paused and thought a little bit about uh, what's been going on in this space? I mean, I think it's always interesting and you have to kind of make sure that you're looking at the context of what, how it could impact us. But I, I would say that our conversations are reaffirming that we're doing things the way that we think is, creates a long-term culture that creates a long-term, these are long-term decisions that are the right decisions. And I think one thing I would say is with the diversity rule, there's been some court challenge, but we've actually won a case um, kind of supporting the rule. So we do feel very good about it. Being a disclosure rule as a private actor with an investor, with investor demand asking for this is something that we think supports transparency. And, uh, and I think that's important. You know, last question for you. I, you know, this at Davos, I've been having many conversations with many CEOs, and there are just two that really stand out. Uh, one was I sat down with the CEO of Centuri, who's a one of the few women CEOs in Japan, and another uh, CEO of Yum Brands China, who, who's also a woman. She said there are actually many CEOs in China who are women. Uh, in the United States, what, what uh, United States is sort of uh, making slow, but, you know, mixed progress on this front. Uh, what would you, you know, these are newly appointed CEOs, they haven't been around as long as you have. What kind of advice would you give them as they kind of take on this role? What, is there anything you can share about your experience at NASDAQ that might help them? Uh, I mean, first of all, I, I actually am not at all surprised to hear about that comment from the, the, um, the young yeah. brand CEO. I think when I've been in China, I've been going to China for 20 years, and Yes, I, I, you know, when I meet with senior executives and companies in China, it's very often a woman. So it's, um, it's definitely more integrated into culture. I think that with regard to uh, the U.S. and Europe, I, you know, I personally think, first of all, at the end of the day, the people who are in the seat are the best people to take that company forward and just 
you know, view us as CEOs, like every other yeah. CEO who's there to drive future value. Um, and, um, and I actually think it's become a much more egalitarian environment. I've never felt disadvantaged or different. I've just done my job. And I think if you just focus on that, um, you'll be successful. Yeah. I, I don't know how else to say it. I, that's that's at least in my experience, yeah. yeah. Well, Adina, thank you so much for spending the time with us. It's uh, great to see you again, and um, it's just amazing to see the transformation that's going on at NASDAQ, um, and we really are grateful you spent the time here. Yeah, thank you so much. This has been great. Thank you. Okay. Then can we give a round of applause for you? The production team for At Barron's is Ellie Esmailadu, Joe Lusby, Kinga Rojak, Rebecca Bisdale, Katie Ferguson, and Laura Salaberry. The executive producer is Melissa Haggerty. We'll be back with a new episode next week. This podcast is supported by Apollo Global Management. By providing companies with access to flexible financing solutions and partnering with management teams, Apollo is there every step of the way to drive positive outcomes for businesses and power economic growth. Learn more at Apollo.com.